footballers' lives. Life After Football is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Presented and produced by Richard Lenton. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Footballers Lives. Today I'm speaking to a guy I've got to know pretty well over the last year or so. When it comes to maximising your footballing talent, former Derby and Coventry defender Paul Williams is an inspiration to young players and he's now gone on to become a really highly regarded coach. Here he talks about his frustration at his lack of opportunities despite being one of the most highly qualified coaches in the country. He talks about keeping Coventry up with a final day goal at White Hart Lane. I'm sure Coventry fans remember that to this day. The madness at the baseball ground under Robert Maxwell. And how big Ron Atkinson remains such an influential figure in his life, despite his infamous racist words that cost him his job at ITV. But when it comes to early managerial inspirations for Paul, only one man fits the bill. My manager all the tops at Derby, so... um. He was he was really really good to me in terms of um, my development. So um, he would so like I, I think um, I signed my second contract and like we were um, and I'd done quite well and he was offering me a new contract. So I remember him going down down the corridor to the ballroom with him and like I was I thought I was going to be leaving. That's why he's called me. Said he sold me or something. So he, he said, oh, "I've got a manager in this ballroom that wants to sign you." And then, and I goes, "Oh, all right." And so I walked in the ballroom and it was just me and him. And it was like, that, that was it, That's, that made me sign, really. Because was something like that, a little bit like that, was, was, was amazing, I thought. Genius for me. We're now moving into 2021, looking at the top of football from maybe an administrative level. Greg Clark has left the FA, Gordon Taylor is on the way out of the PFA. Do those organisations now need to change as we move into a new year? Do attitudes need to change, whoever comes in at the top? Yeah, I believe so. I think um, Greg Clark kind of epitomised, um, or in, in my in my view, the FA in terms of the kind of personnel they have in 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 the place of hierarchy and decision makers within the FA. I think um, hopefully things will change with with both entities, um, the FA and the PFA, with hopefully Gordon um, being relieved of his duties. I think that. 2020 has has been a time for change. I think I think not only in terms of um, racial discrimination, but I think LGBT and all the other all the other um, areas on protected characteristics. I think it's something that we should be really conscious of um, and get a brand new start in 2020 that we can move forward and everyone feels that we've got the equality and diversity within all organisations and that everyone's getting the same opportunity that that they they deserve. Did Greg Clark's comments that led to his resignation surprise you? No, not at all. Like I said, um, within within certain hierarchies and, and within organisations, I can even talk about um, my son's school. It's very, very similar. You know that um, I'm not saying that they're racist or or that they don't know. I think I just think they're just just um, set in the ways, and it, it's we need. I think you need a, a kind of bit of energy and a bit of youth and a bit of um, different direction in terms of what, what's been good. So what's been good for the last maybe 30, 40 years with the FA, I think it's time for change now. I think it's time for, to, to have a clean sweep and make sure that you've got new objectives and new, new um, 
even perception in terms of other people from the outside looking within the FA and, and the PFA and seeing that there's, there's changing about and that there's, everyone's got, like I said, everyone's got an equal chance and, and also it's more transparent. I think whoever comes into the top of both organisations has got a really daunting challenge, not just in terms of the diversity issues that you've mentioned, but other big issues that have arisen recently, like dementia. You know, how are, how are those organisations going to be able to, to cope with that and potential myriad claims coming in from ex-players? Uh, I think, um, which is something that I, I kind of live by. It, it, I think it's that the, person, the persons and, and, the, and the people, the decision makers' values, I think it is. It's about if, if you want, really want to make change, you really want to do what's right. I think it is, it is a tough road, whatever, whatever task or whatever um, obstacles in front of you. It's tough, but I think if, if you've got that clear vision that this is what I want to achieve and this is what I want to do, and I, I genuinely believe it's the right thing to do, then I think um, it's not that hard a job. I think, if, like you said, it's like me wanting, wanting to become a professional footballer at the age of 16. I was focused and I, I knew at times you're going to have to make um, hard decisions and you're going to have to um, lose a few people on the way. But if you're focused and, and like I say, channeled and where you want to get to, I think... Um, and you, and you generally, generally believe it's the right thing to do, not, not um, politically right, or, or you generally think, like dementia, I think that's something that you really should pay a lot, a lot of um, attention to, I think in terms of, of just being honest and, be, and I think and being something that, that's been swept under the carpet in terms of the PFA, I think it's something that we should really have a look into because it's affecting a lot of people's lives. Have you had any ex-teammates, friends who've been in touch about that particular issue or have you heard anecdotal evidence of former teammates and players who've struggled? No, I, I have. Um, I've not even told on this rich before. Jeff Hassel was my window cleaner. I had the most famous window cleaner when I was at uh, um, Derby, lived in Burton-on-Trent. And he was an amazing man. He's so humble, like... I can't speak high enough for him, and um, for him, for him to to go through what he's gone through, and being such a nice man, I think um, it's just a sad story. Not just for for Jeff, but for his family too. And I know Dawn's doing lots and lots, and and had had um, a tough ride with with the PFA in terms of that. I just think that um, it's just a sad story. And the more it comes out, the more more people within football are identifying that they they have. They are going down this road. It's just sad that, that what's happening now, that we're not looking into it because, again, we don't want this further down the line in 10 years' time being, being the main focus if we can, we can try and halt it now or, or have something in place that's going to help those players further down the line. Why do you think the PFA did brush it under the carpet in a way? I think it's, it's something that I spoke about earlier, Richard. If, if you values and generally believe that you want to, want to do, do good in the world, I think I think um, that the PFA have, have had their own perception. People have had their own perception about the PFA in terms of what's what what they prioritise in 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 their journeys. And I think again, being out of touch with 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 the real life of the game of football and former players, you know, and you've got one man there um, kind of running the show and what he says goes in terms of not being something that we, I think it should be. Um, a multidisciplinary thing where everyone has a say and, and we kind of do what's right 
And I think um, in terms of dementia, that's something that, like, you know, we've had some fantastic players, um, like the 1966 World Cup squad, that are going through these, um, going through dementia now. I think we owe it to them as people to, to give them the best, the best treatment and the best um, opportunity that doesn't happen for the next generation too. Well, let's go back to your early Derby days because I had to research why Craig Short and our other mutual friends called you Jossie. But then I think I stumbled across the answer on a Derby County fans forum. But I'll let you tell us why you were called Jossie. So, um, I mean, when I was a YT, YT, YTS, I um, played at fullback. And like, I was notorious on shooting from long range. And um, I can't remember what year the World Cup was. And Jossie Moore scored against Ireland, did against Pat Jennings from a long range shot. And then it, then it stuck from there. So you're Jossie, and that, that stuck for years and years and still to this day. And it was 1986, that World Cup. And I think he only scored one more international goal. And it was another absolute worldie from about 30 yards. So yeah. not, not a bad guy to be named after. No, but his, his shots were on target. <laughs> I know you maybe played at fullback in that game, but I think you started out as a forward, didn't you? What kind of forward player were you? Who would you compare yourself to? I wouldn't compare myself to anything. I, I just used just to love scoring goals. That was it. So I used to play um, in Burton on I used to play for St Mary's. So I used to play um, left wing or centre forward. And I'd just knock it past people and shoot, shoot the goal. Pretty greedy, really. So, yeah, that was my centre-forward That was my forward days, I'd say. So how did you get spotted? And how did you end up at Derby County? Were there other options? It was, it was a lot different to the system now. So um, you were just going, you used to call them schoolboy forms when I was um, at schoolboy age, obviously. And um, I never actually signed any forms for, for Derby for anybody. I went to Sheffield United. I remember going to Sheffield United on loan. Uh, not on loan, sorry. With Sheffield United for a trial, went to Aston Villa and I went to Derby. And um, I'd go to Derby through the, the summer holidays and probably try and um, get to Villa if I, if I could um, get a um, slot or get transport to get there. And then I was, I was obviously the last, last YT, YTS person to get talk on. They left it right, right until the last minute for me at Derby. Looking and forgot an opportunity. So what were you thinking at the time? Were you thinking, I'll go and play a bit of non-league and try and rebuild? Or were you thinking about an alternative career away from football? So, so not, not really. So, so I'll um, go back. So my school days um, wasn't the best. I just wanted to play football. That's all I wanted to do. My dad used to talk about the three degrees quite a lot. And obviously John Barnes was in his pump early days. So they, they were just people that, that gave me a pathway to think that you can become a professional footballer. And I, um, I, that, was, that was my goal. And obviously like, I did get teachers telling me you, you will not amount to anything. anything. And it's funny you just said that because all I remember is, is in my, sorry, because I'm, I'm old, fourth year, so that's the last year before school. I went on work experience to TC Harrison. It was a local, look as it was, it's a local garage in, um, Vernon Trent, and that was the road they were trying to push me down. So I was going to become a mechanic. So I spent a week, a week there, and all I remember is, yeah, getting done because I was a new boy and I was so naive. They sent me for a long wait. So I went there, and I was—I must have stood there for half an hour at this, at this, at this, at this door. The chap said, "Go, go, go over there and ask him for a long wait." And obviously, that was it. I had the long wait. That's what I learned. 
from did. being a mechanic. That's the only thing I learnt. Well, I remember the TV adverts in our local area, TCH for TC Harrison. Yeah, exactly. That was it. That was where I was. And there you that, go. Um, so going you back to the question, sorry, Rich. Yeah, so, um, yeah, they, they were, and obviously being the last one, was, it was, I don't know, I was just focused and think, I didn't really think about the negative side of it. I just thought that, that um, for all the hard work that I put in, because for me, Rich, and, and my story of being um, a footballer and also a coach's play, I was always the underdog. I, was never, I don't think that I had enough time to even play in league football, let alone um, play in the Premier League and, and share the pitch with so many great players like I have. So how did you find the inner result to make the best of what you had then? It was, I think it's a lot to do with my upbringing. You know, my, my dad always said that you need to be better than, than, than everyone else. You have to work harder than everyone else and you have to make sacrifices through that. And also the fact that um, I'd, I'd always, always just thought that like, the only way that I, I'm, I'm going to survive is to fight and to fight hard and fight and fight, fight for what you believe that, that you're good enough to do. So that's been, that's been um, something that's been in me since, since day one, since my early years, you know, being at school. Like, and I don't really want to make this about this um, podcast about colour, but like being, being the only, me and my brother were the only black, black kids in our school, it was tough at times. And that's all, all I learned was being, not being, being the underdog and being, being uh, to go and prove, prove a point and prove yourself. So a horrible negative was turned into a positive and you would have had to take that kind of spirit into your YTS journey. I, I just missed out on a YTS for uh, Scunthorpe United. I wasn't taken on. And I know that they took on 16 players on the YTS, but every year they would only take two out of those 16. After two years, they'd only take two out of those 16 onto professional forms. So how did you stand out from the crowd then in those two years as a youth team player? Um, it's so... In our year, they only took five, play five players on. I obviously also ran within the group. Again, but again, and like I say, throughout my life, you turn negatives into positives, Richard. I just had, a, had a, a focus and an aim to be the best in my year and obviously catch up to the second years that we had to. So um, it's just something in a resolve that I, that I have that like, I just have to keep fighting for what I believe in. And I think it was 1989 you graduated into the pro ranks. It was a club that had just finished fifth in the top flight. There were some big names in there. So what was it like joining that dressing room? Were you, were you confident to be around them or was it a case of putting on a bit of a front? No, it was none of those. It, it was just keep your head down. Like You'd look around and it was around World Cup stage. So Peter Shilton was the goalkeeper. We had Mark Wright, Dean Saunders... Michael Forsyth, we had a, we had a time, Mick Harford, again, who, again, would keep the young boys in track. You would never get too big of boots with, with Mick around because he, he, was, he was the hardest player I've, I've ever seen on a football pitch. And me, but he downplays it. It was either him or Billy Whitehurst, but Mick Harford now says, I don't know if I was the hardest man. I just used to put my head in places that other people wouldn't. No, but no, Mick, I, <laughs> I can virtually, I can actually say, yeah, he's probably the hardest player I've seen. seen and he still scares me now, even though I've seen Mick in his, in his hobbles around, bless him. But now he, he's still got that, that um, rod of fear that he, he shoots, shoots at me all the time. What, did you have to compete against him in training? Did they do lots of defence versus attack and you had to look after Mick? 
Yeah, and also learned learned to do the dark arts myself through through that that period, losing a couple of teeth and having, having a, a bloody nose and a, and a cut eye at times. But no, it, it was it was really good um, learning ground. And going back to, to as a YT, I, I used to clean Martin Rice boots. So again, like he, he was a, a really good chap and took me under his wing at times and talked talk to me about being a professional footballer and, and what, what it takes and what not to do and what, what not, sometimes not how to act because that, that was a big thing with um, being a young player was make sure that you present yourself properly and don't get too carried away or to, or to get carried away with um, being in the first team or being around the first team. Oh, no, it's good to hear that you had players as mentors and obviously Arthur Cox, you've mentioned. I spent a bit of time with Mark Wright years ago in the Caribbean. I, I really like Mark. Um, yeah. But you were still playing as a forward player at the time. What do you remember of May the 4th, 1991, Derby County versus Southampton? Be careful not to offend any Southampton fans. It was... It was, um, it was, it was, it was talking about this conversation recently and it brings back... Um, Bittersweet memories. One was the bitter is that um, a, a chap that's no longer with us, Justin Phillips, scored on that day too. A, a fantastic man and a really good bloke around. A lot, it was a, like a year younger than I was, and he's passed away. But no, it was he scored. He scored the best goal of the day actually, and obviously me scoring a hat trick that day was was um, an amazing feeling. But we'd all we'd been on the um, of getting relegated. But no, it was it was a fantastic day scoring a hat trick. Amazing. It was a very slender number 10 who was banging in a hat-trick. And that was a proper way to take a penalty. But it was a great end to that 1991 season. But you were relegated, like you say. That win against Southampton came after a club record 20 games without a win. So what was going on? You had all these star names. But what was going on at Derby back in the early 90s? Why did it go so pear-shaped? We had a lot of things. So from... For me, getting in the team, it was a lot of stuff that happened. So, um, well, Maxwell was in charge and um, we were flying high and bringing a lot of players in. Behind the scenes, the infrastructure was, was I would say, was falling apart in terms of um, the players we had. The players we had should, should not have been relegated, but just stuff that went on, on maybe behind the scenes that a lot of people didn't see. Um, Such as, what was going on? Was it, was it things where... Maybe you weren't being paid on time and stuff like that, or was it the way you were being treated? No, not to that extent. It's just, just it was just a lot of um, negative um, press and negative feelings around the club. You know, um, I don't think we were. And going back to playing later on in the careers, and to go into to go in terms of togetherness, um, it just wasn't there at that time. And I think a lot, some of the players may made their eyes on on obviously staying in, in the league and playing somewhere else. And playing at different different teams, so it was it was a tough time, but it was a really good learning curve for me personally. Really good. What kind of character was Robert Maxwell? What was he like to deal with? I didn't have much to deal with. We 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 only knew it was at a game when we looked up at the boardroom. But obviously, like things were going on behind the scenes, and then um, obviously what happened to him, it came across that he, he was no longer with us again, and then again the club demise, all the probably financial backing that he had given given us gone out the window so now it's time to ask Fox have to rebuild mm. losing all those those star names that I mentioned before and, and starting all over again what do you remember of Robert Maxwell signing those two Czech players in 1989 <laughs> do you remember yeah I do remember I do I do remember <laughs> let me see if I can pronounce their names Lubos Kubik and Ivo Noflisek 
There were Czechoslovakian yeah. internationals with Slavia Prague. And during a pre-season training camp, they absconded and spent five months fleeing through West Germany, Spain, Belgium and Holland. And then they turned up in England and Maxwell tried to claim that they were amateur footballers and refugees and thought that he could just have them for nothing. <laughs> that was that, that summed up there, Rich, the, the, the time he had a derby that, that it was just, it was nuts. Mate, nuts! It was crazy. It wasn't all the like I was saying. All these stories that come it was just like unsettling for where we were and for our future plans at the club. In terms, of random things would happen like that. Very regular at Derby under under Robert Maxwell. Yeah, and the players got a grand unveiling on the pitch before a yeah. die. Yeah, we thought that these were going to be our saviors, mate, and then that was it. <laughs> that was it. And then they were shit back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. And then I think obviously you got relegated the following season. You scored another hat trick during that season against Watford. So you were still a pretty, a pretty dominant forward player. Thirteen goals. Yeah. So um, yeah, um, I played centre midfield. And to be fair, we had um, George Williams. He, was, he used to just sit and he used to tell me, "Don't get, don't be around and get yourself up, up." And so I used to just run around and use my energy and obviously get on the end of stuff. But no. Um, it was a really great season for me personally in terms of getting the goals um, that we did this season. A few of them were penalties, by the way. But um, yeah, it was good. Getting a hat-trick David, against David James, who, who taunted me later on because obviously we joined up when we were in England 21s with him and he weren't happy with me. I don't think he spoke to me the first few days. But um, yeah, it was, it was a great day. But saying that, oh, Richard, baseball ground had some atmosphere, mate. It was, it, was, it was brilliant. It was a history of the club. It was an honour to actually, actually play for him. And the night games, Obviously, um, a baseball ground, mate. I like I know people talk about atmosphere, but like it's, it was second to none. It was an amazing amphitheater. It was. I'm with you on this. I think football has lost something with the demise of these old grounds, and Arsenal fans will still revere Highbury, won't they? Far more than this more corporate theatre-like environment of the Emirates. But yeah. I suppose we had to make so-called progress, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. But like I say. And like just thinking about the hat trick there, it, it was like it was just an amazing, amazing time. It's like the pop side they used to talk about, and they used to sing lots of songs. It was a great, great atmosphere. Great atmosphere. And that was a decent season, I think. I don't think you got promoted, did you? But was the camaraderie better amongst the group? Was it was it still a time where you can sort of bond off the field as well in the old fashioned way? Yeah, it was. And plus, um, the average age had been brought down to maybe 22. And we had the likes of um, Paul Kitson, um, Tommy Johnson, and Craig Short had come. So we were all, and Darren Wassell had all come. So we, we had a, um, quite a, a young team, which was being assembled. A lot of, a lot of the lads had been from the 21s too, so I've mentioned. But no, it was, it was a great time. We, we had a really, really good team spirit. And very similar to... Um, where I played at Coventry too. We used to get in early because we just enjoyed each other's company. And like, obviously, like nothing was safe in terms of banter. And don't ask me to say anything because obviously this is being recorded and I can't mention <laughs> the majority of it. Is there anything you can mention? Who was the worst one of those lads? Any incidents? No, there was lots of, inc lots of incidents. Just the usual stuff that happened at football grounds. You know, you have the odd fighting training. Um, did you have any scratched in training? You're smirking a little bit, Paul. Did you have any? No, not, not a derby. Not a derby. Didn't. Um, I was just, just trying to remember. I just remember one or two people having, having a few scuffles. Um, 
who was the worst? And obviously, like some people taking it too far, talking about um, close people in, in their families and that. But no, it was it was it was really good time. The band was really really good, really good. What happened the following year, '93, that saw you get converted into a centre half? Was it a conversation with a manager? Was it your suggestion? Were you just filling in for someone? Yeah, filling in. So um, Darren Wasler got injured, and um, Roy McFarland, who's a fantastic centre back himself. Um, Dinas just told me that that's where you're playing this weekend and, and that was it and I never looked back from there. Me and Shorty um, had a really good relationship on, on, on the pitch. Shorty was like, he was a LeBron and he'd go and edit and I'd try and sweep up behind him because Shorty was um, amazing in the air and very strong and a tower of strength at the back and it was a pleasure to play with. Shorty was a pleasure. Um, so yeah, I used to just try and tidy up behind behind shorts. Really, he my job was made so easy because obviously he was so dominant. Were you given any advice on how to play, or was it just a case where you you use your football brain and experience to take on a new position? Yeah, so coaching coaching has, has has changed which over the years. So it wasn't we didn't do didn't get all the information that we get nowadays. Or or as a coach, you have to give players now. But it it was just. Like, you, you know you'd be up against and, and make sure that, he, again, he didn't get the better of you. So, again, going back to um, a lot of resilience and, and fight, you just, you'd do anything, claw or anything, just to make sure that your, your opponent didn't get the better of you. So, it was just, that, in those days, it was just like actually going out there. And, and also, it, it was the same as passing your nearest player. That was it, keep the ball. So, it, it, was, it wasn't um, the articulate game that it is now. Mm. But a big change in terms of the way that you were playing. Now, the, the following season, was it the worst moment of your career? The playoff final defeat against Leicester City, a win there would have got you into the Premier League? Yeah, it was, it was devastating. Richard, I, don't, I hope you don't mind me um, going back to the game before because we had an horrendous time at Millwall. We played him in the playoff of a two-legged two -legged game where I think we, we had gone, at the base ground, we'd beaten 2-0. And it, I think that, that, was, that was by far the worst night I've ever had in football. We had to leave the pitch two times in the first half because um, fans were running on the pitch. Martin Taylor nearly got smacked in the face. And like, I remember turning around and there's a police horse right next to me and I'm just to get off the pitch because um, it was that bad. The um, atmosphere and fans randomly running on the pitch and, and having a go, go at us because I think we scored three, two early goals. So the time was actually over by then in terms of, of Millwall getting a chance to get into the playoffs. And obviously, like with me and me and Gary Charles having to be substituted um, the last two minutes for our own safety, was a smart move by by the Roy, the manager at the time. But we had to leave the pitch, obviously, because we were getting targeted, um, racially abused while we were there. So, so, oh, so it was more than just violence; it, it was racially targeted. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. It was. A, it was a really bad, bad um, day, night. Sorry, it's a really bad night. How do you manage to keep your concentration and your composure to be able to play through what is an incredibly important game? Again, the focus was just on, on, on winning the game. But like, like you're saying, it was just it's something that I'd never experienced to that level before. And the fact that like, we were no longer seen as football, just seen as, as black people who, who they didn't like. It was, it was, it was horrendous. It, was, it kind of took me a few days to get over it, actually, because... I've never experienced, and that, I weren't naive to, to racism, but like to take it to that level is something that, that will stay in me forever. Almost like dehumanising. Yeah, it did. It, it did. That's a, that's, a, that's the right word. It was. 
So were you able to speak to anyone, whether it was at the club or other people, just to kind of, you know, let go of these feelings, just to get it off your chest? Or was it something that you just had to deal with on your own? Sometimes I deal with myself. Something that, that, that again, is not, not, I don't know if it's in place now, but like, just something that like, it wasn't, it was a taboo subject and everyone swept under the carpet. Don't, it's back. The next day, um, Millwall's chairman actually said it was my fault, all, all of it that happened. And again, like that, that was a press at the time that it, that it was it was like pushing the blame somewhere else. Mm. And, and for me um, personally, it was it was a horrendous time. And then having no no support system around it, or having people that understood, like I could go and speak to my dad about it. My dad's had that through his life, but like how how do we go move forward with it? Was was a tough time for me, if I'm honest. What justification did the Millwall chairman have, just out of interest, to blame you for this? No, but. <laughs> Because, because I think he was just defending his club at the end of the day. And like, for me, it's in life and society that, that people don't see the bigger picture that affects it as on, on the individual or the person or the group of people. But the fact that, that they have um, the thought process just to protect their club. And, and, and it, and it is, a, is, a, is a difficult conversation. That's why even nowadays, which even where we are in two, um, um, 2020 that, that it's a difficult conversation to have with people about racism people kind of clam up and go into themselves in terms of um, dealing with racism or, or wanting to understand um, people's stories or people's journeys it, it's, it's a tough conversation and for me it's not about make sure that um, people of colour come first it's not at all it's just just that they're given the same treatment that everyone else and just not see not seeing colour is not a thing that, that divides people just just something that that We've got a heart like everyone else and lungs and, and a breathing apparatus like everyone else. Mm. That's all we've seen as really. Yeah. We'll probably touch on one or two um, issues again a little bit later, but let's go back to those mid, the mid-90s at Derby. The club kept pushing for promotion really hard, didn't they, for those first few years and that, you know, they were spending some serious money, but then it seemed like the budgets just got cut and you saw Kitts and Pembridge, Charles Johnson all leaving, bit of a domino rally. Were you not tempted to move yourself and get a, get back in the Premier League? Um, yeah, so, so sorry, Rich. I'm going to go back to the question you asked. Sorry. So yeah, Leicester was a tough day. Um, they beat us two one. Tommy scored the first. No, yeah, I think Tommy scored the first goal at Wembley. And um, the equaliser was, and then people ask me about this all the time. So I think while she headed it down, and we've been um, played at Wembley. I've never played on a turf so dry in my life. I'm not. This is not an excuse I'm making here. But when the ball bounced, I, I anticipated it was going to bounce um, a lot higher than it did. And it died on me, and it went in. It, it looks really bad on, on the TV, but like I had, I had let it in, or it just, it's gone over my head. But it was, it, that, that's the, I'm not making, it's not an excuse, that's, that's generally what I thought it would have bounced a lot higher, but I've never had it off the line. And, and from then, we um, got beat 2-1, and again, another devastating time that summer was surreal for me in terms of, like I look back and I don't, I don't really can't remember much about it. It was, it was a tough time. Obviously, I was living in Burton on Trent all the time. So everywhere you went, people were talking about the incident and also talking about the fact that we hadn't gone up to um, the Premier League. I, I did notice that you reached the Anglo-Italian Cup final for Derby or the Agro-Italian Cup, as what people used to call it, against Cremonese. Why did you miss out on the final? Such a glorious occasion. Uh, we had played... Um, Liverpool on the Saturday before. No, no, sorry, this was Saturday, maybe a month before. And um, I 
I had got a bad tackle from Steve Nichol, but it wasn't bad enough to train. So we trained on the Monday and we, we played um, a game 11 v 11, but out of position. So I remember playing uh, right wing and big Kev Francis was playing left wing, left back, sorry. So I knocked the ball down the line and he, he, he had legs longer than anything else. And he tackled me and he put me out for three months. So um, I missed I miss from, from March. I missed the whole, whole end of the season and obviously missing, missing the cup final. Too. That it would be nice to play at Wembley, wouldn't it? But, yeah, uh, I was on crutches. Why did you leave Derby for Coventry, summer of 95? You, so we spoke about um, the likes of um, Tom, Pem, Shorty, um, Kitts, all going to the Premier League. It's something, again, that I, I aspire to, to and wanted to play in. And again, like, I've, I've had this conversation with um, a few people recently. I regret the way I went about leaving Derby, but I don't regret leaving Derby to play in the Premier League. So maybe I could have been um, more subtle, because obviously in a local lab, and they had given me an opportunity, Rich, to play, play professional football. And I owed, them, I owed the club and the people in it a lot, and, a lot, and the fans a lot more than the way that I, I left. So me being young and... and focused on wanting to play, play in the Premier League. It, was, it become like a fight for me that, I, but by any means possible, I'm going to get a transfer here. Hmm. I'm going to leave. And um, I did in the end, got a chance <laughs> to work with Ron Atkinson. <laughs> Again, who, who's a character. But no, no, I, I regret the way I left, but it was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to, to try and pit myself against the best players in the world. And um, obviously got that opportunity at Coventry. How did Big Ron sell it to you? Do you remember your first meeting with him? Yeah, it was in um, Jefferson's. It was a it was a bar in Solihull, and um, I was sold in the second I, I, I'd seen him. Obviously, like you've seen him on the touchline, his sunglasses, and and he was a character anyway, Ron. And for the majority of the meeting, I just laughed, and it wasn't just laughing to make him feel comfortable it was very laughing he, he was he is such a funny man so no he had sold me to the club with seconds so no it was a, it was a great opportunity obviously he's had a, um, a great career and obviously knowing about the three degrees at West Brom Ron, Ron Atkinson was prevalent in, in their development too so it was something that it was kind of an honour for me to actually be signed by him and what, what did he buy you to drink? And what was he drinking? I can imagine him having a Del Boy type drink, you know, a Malibu and Baby Sham or something. I don't know what it was, but he didn't have an umbrella. But no, he, 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 Ron's got that persona, hasn't he, that, that he's, he's larger than life. And he, he was, I remember him turning up with his driver and him getting out the back of his jack and just thought, wow, this is it. This is the big time. So, um, yeah, no, he was, he, was, he was very, very funny. And a, a good man, Ron. Really good funny. He was, he was good to me. He was. And at Manchester United, I know he had a sunbed in his office. Was it that kind of scenario at Coventry? Yeah, because he'd come out training. I don't mind, I, he won't mind me saying, he'd come out training. And all I'd hear, because he'd join in the father's side, he'd come in with his, his, his um, shorts rolled up and his Adidas Predator boots. And he'd come, he'd come and say to you, pass it to your best player. And that's all you could hear in training. That was him saying, oh, well, no, pass it to your best player. That, that was all he'd say. It was, it was, it was brilliant. It was. He was, was a good man. Do you think as much fun as it was with Ron in the mid-90s, do you think he'd possibly passed his sell-by date and the game was changing? Probably, yeah. The, the people playing it had changed, I think. I think so, so where, where it was enough to motivate these players 
to play. Ron, Ron was a really good motivator, but um, by the time we had got to Coventry um, and after a couple of seasons, we were wanting a bit more than that. We were needing a bit of um, a bit of tactical work and, and technical work, which Gordon Tracking um, took over from Ron and, and gave us. Hmm. So with Ron, it was what literally five sides. I mean, people, young people listening to this, won't get the heads round that old managers, which he was an old manager, were part and parcel of a, what was supposed to be a serious training session. But you hear about Graham Sooners and Kevin Keegan and Kenny Dalglish and all those guys. You just couldn't imagine it these days, could you? No, 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 not at all. <laughs> if, if I joined the session, I wouldn't get a kick of the ball anyway. But no, um, it was, it was, that was part and parcel training. It, it, we'd come in and um, we'd have a five-a-side. And, and, and what it was that, that if, we didn't, if we didn't win, I, I, again, I, I'd hear Ron, Ron Atkinson saying, I can see trees. And that was it. So, was, so at Wrighton, there was trees right down the far end of the training ground. And that was it. If we lost, I could see trees. If you weren't running about in training, it's a willow, I can see trees. And that's it. You know you have to go run around there and come back and then join back in. So that, that, that was um, our, our, our majority of our sessions. And diet, presumably, was still old school, pretty much a free-for-all, was it? Yeah, it was. It, it was in terms of, um, we were just sneaking in actually um, nutrition, but like in the early days and early times at Derby, it was, it was just the same. Remember, we used to just um, get away on a Friday morning and make sure you were saying, and then like, you know, your diet was your own. It was, and no, no, no tips on how, how to have it and, and all that. But again, but towards the middle end of, middle of Cobb, nutrition's were, were starting to be, um, made available to us. Yeah. Well, that was Gordon Strachan, of course, and he was famed for looking after himself and playing till he was 40, which was unbelievable. But let, let me just ask you about uh, Ron, because obviously what he said off camera, 2004, quite rightly cost him his job at ITV. But I've heard players like Carlton Palmer, Brendan Batson, and other black players who he's worked with praising for how he's helped them develop. What are your thoughts on working with Ron looking back? Because I think I'm right in saying you phoned him the day after that in 2004, didn't you? What did you yeah. say to him? I, I told him how, how silly he was for actually, actually um, making the comment. But like people, people who know him, and it's, it happens nowadays with a lot of people, you can be vilified for stuff for a, a snapshot of who you are. And I can honestly say to him, Ron Atkinson, and I remember doing an article um, in, the, in the newspaper, if Ron Atkinson is a racist, I'm a white man. Because he's, he's, he is not, he's the complete opposite. He is, like, we used to go to games on a Saturday afternoon with him. Ron used to, like, pick me up on Jefferson's and then we'd go to a game. He, he was, he was, he was um, a really good man. It was, it was hard for him to be labelled a racist when he had done so much for so many black players in his, in his career. Hmm. And do you think he can kind of get away with that generational defence? It's a really good question, Rich, because, and this isn't, isn't just not in football, this is society. You can, you can only learn from what happened before. Mm. And, if you, it, and some people have an open mind where they want to, want to know a bit more and, and understand the implications of what people say. Or some people do what they've, they've done all their lives and, and think that's the right thing to do. So I can, I can relate that to coaching at the time. We do sessions that probably the manager had done from the, his previous manager when he was playing. So that, that was kind of... Um, environment it was so in terms of um, 
racial um, environments, things that were said then would, would be vilified in, in this day and age. And a lot of people who are playing it, um, and I speak to a lot of um, black players, former players, they just had to get on with it. They were, they were getting um, racial abuse or, or banter from teammates that wouldn't, wouldn't be able to get away with now. And that, we just had to just get on with it. In terms of, um, of, of Ron and going back, back to it, I think it's, it's something that he's probably had in his generation before his and, and thought that was the norm. Mm. And I think I'm right in saying you used to still ring him up for advice, didn't you, when you were offered certain coaching jobs to see whether it was right or not? Yeah, I still speak to, I speak, still speak to him now. Maybe, uh, I think it was about two weeks ago the last time I spoke to him. Mm. He's still in fine fat and, and, and lights. He, he still makes me laugh. But no, I stay in touch with Ron. I speak to him um, regularly. Well, let's move on to Gordon Strachan then. What was it like working with him and suddenly having a player manager at the club? Gordon Strachan. So it's tough um, going to a club and doing... So Gordon Strachan's taken over from the majority of sessions and obviously, and rightly so, I wanted um, the sessions to be more intense. But it's tough having a 40-year-old man running the sessions and being, being the fittest and, and, the, and, the, and the most technically gifted player in, in the team. It, it was tough. So like we would um, we'd do sessions and then Gordon Stratton being as fit, fit as he was, he'd do running sessions a bit at the front. He'd play games and, and, and still be going in the 90th minute, which, which was tough for a lot, a lot of the lads, the rest of the lads in the teams. Because obviously what you see with Gordon Stratton is a passionate man and, and wants to win. And he wanted, all, he wanted to try and instill that in all of us too, that um, no matter what age you are, you can always get better. And that's one thing I really took from him. Mm. And, and like I've got um, so much admiration for him because he's just he's just honest. And like you can see with his interviews, some people um, think that he's saying the wrong things, but he's just honest. And I quite like I like that about him. It's breath of fresh air stuff, isn't it? Some of those interviews when he was at Southampton, I remember vividly. But he he picked you in his favourite Coventry eleven at centre half with Richard Shaw. He did say the two of you wouldn't want to play with anyone else. So you must have had a good understanding the two of you. No. It, <laughs> So like, and even like you say, like you say, I still speak to Gordon Strachan now, and I've got the utmost respect for him, and and I, I class him as a friend. So our time at Coventry, Rich, he signed five centre backs. So Ron had signed me and Short, me and Shawsy, and we were playing. Um, we had Liam Daish. He came, played a few games, and went. Gary Breen, he came a few. We had Mo Konjic, came in. He was um, Bosnia's captain. He came in and played a few games. And then we end up like, just with me and Shorty again. So it goes back to that thing that's instilled in you, Rich. I used to just make, when Gordon Stratton took me out of the team, I just made sure that, I, 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 that he could recognise what, what he's missing. So I'd train, train even harder and train even harder that he had no choice to put me back in the team. And that was throughout my time at, at Coventry. That was something that... that um, Gordon Stratton created the right environment for that if, if you train hard and do the right things that you get back in. So I always, always knew that once, once I improved my game that, that I had a chance of playing. And again, come down to the honesty because Gordon Stratton, he never um, shied away from telling you what you needed to do and, and where you were going wrong. Okay. And I, I didn't mind that. And that was always your reaction in terms of trying to get back in the team or would you go sometimes to his office or with any manager and knock on the door just to get an explanation of why you'd been left out? No, I, I, didn't, I didn't go. I never knocked on the manager's office because it, it was something that was in me. I mean, I've spoken out before. It's just that fight now that, that it's like, I'm going to prove you wrong. That's all I, that was all I was doing. 
And like, I think it's counterproductive actually going to see the manager at times because for me, and I got this pretty, pretty early in, in life in my career thing, if the manager um, wants to stay in the job, he picks his best team, doesn't he? And, and it's in his own mind what he thinks the best team is. It's my job now to, to make it hard for him and difficult for him to, to pick, pick that, that winning team without me. And I like, like I've said, I, I, didn't, I, don't, I actually don't think that I had enough skills to, to become a Premier League player. But once I got there, I wanted to stay there. So I would do anything to, to be able to be at a Premier League club. And that, that, that was throughout my career. It's just, just I know how to, how to fight and how to, how to knuckle down and get my head down. Well, it was thanks to your goal that you stayed being a Premier League player after the 96-97 season. What do you remember of that final day win at White Hart Lane? We um we kicked off fifteen minutes late, Rich. So so we had um obviously getting a team sheet and, and talking about that strong team. And I was thinking today's a day. And and to be fair, Rich, and, and I honestly say we at Coventry we had a, a great team spirit. It was ridiculous. We had um so lads we would start training at maybe half past ten, and we had lads in at half eight. Just just because the banter was was ridiculous, people getting sick, people's people's gear, people's watches, people's cars. It it was it was crazy. Like we had um, David Burrows, who was a really really good lad. He he was he thought he was a fashion king, and like he would get get dogs abuse in terms of his gear. And then we had we had um, Guy McAllister, a sophisticated gent. He'd walk he'd walk in with his watches and, and top of the range. Um, trousers and all that stuff. So there was there was a, gr- a good dynamics in the change room. I mean, obviously I had Dion D- Dublin, Darren Huckabee, also. So so we had a, a good um, array of um, characters within the dressing room again, which, which which didn't clash, and we had a really good team spirit. And I can't can't say anything about the team without mentioning Steve Grizovic. He was he was like the godfather of the change room, and when when he spoke, you listened. So no, we had a really good dynamics in the change room. A good, really good team spirit. And going back to the day, fortunate enough to um, get on the end of um, a Guy McAllister corner and toe poke the ball in the net. And it was, it was, it was a surreal feeling. I didn't quite, didn't quite sink into after the game when people were telling me you've actually scored the goal that, that kept us up that season. But no, it was a good night anyway. And it was a strange one, wasn't it? Because that was a season when Middlesbrough were deducted three points for not being able to fulfil that picture against Blackburn. Yeah. So you, you were given a bit of a lifeline but took advantage of it. Yeah, the God was shining. The football God was shining on us, Richard. And again, like you know, you, you see the picture of Janino crying when he's getting relegated. It, it was, it was, again, a, a mad time in terms of the season that, that Middlesbrough were looking up. Middlesbrough got um, three points deducted, and we were able to stay up. Yeah, I'll have to just go back to Steve Grizovic because you've just reminded me there was a story a few years ago that he'd been kidnapped by the Kazakhstan government. Do you remember that one? <laughs> Could you believe it? <laughs> Which nothing surprises me in football, nothing at all surprised me. I did ring him at a time asking where he was. Unfortunately, he answered and he was okay. But no, it was, it was again, I, I don't know where that story came from, but it, it, was, it was mad. If it got a good by aliens, then I could understand because Augie was that, that far out, but it, it was a bit far fetched that he'd been, been uh, kidnapped by a Kazakhstan. It was yeah. I remember speaking to one of his teammates who said he couldn't believe he managed to not smoke for 90 minutes because he had that many. That was um, so. That was my first day at Sino Commentary, and Oggy had a chair next to the, next to the canteen. And he, he, like, we were eating dinner, and the next minute he's lit up. But to be fair, as soon as Gordon Strachan got in charge, he'd he, he packed that up. 
what Gordon Gordon advised him to quit smoking or said. No, I, I just I think training got that hard that, that it wasn't helping him at the back, and and like Gordon and the manager wouldn't wouldn't allow the goalkeepers to slag off. Sorry, to 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 um, slack off at the, at the back of it. So I think um, Oggy made a good life decision and stopped smoking. Oh, brilliant! Well, I hope he's managed to carry that on. Um, <laughs> A completely different player at Coventry, Robbie Keane. What do you remember of his first oh. day at training? Because I think uh, Richard Shaw said he, he burst out laughing at one stage because Robbie Keane was giving you the runaround. Was that, was that a fair comment? Yeah, it was. Um, so you come into training and you think, oh no, as a 17-year-old lad or 18-year-old player, then the, you know, you're going you're gonna to be able to handle him. He, he was... Astonishing and way above his years, Robbie Keane. What a talented player he was. And obviously, virtually, um, his career tells you that he, he's a talented player. He was doing things. I remember, like, um, for the first time I'd seen the no-look pass, he was doing it on his first day of training. Robbie Keane's first day of training statement was, I'll be here for a while, but then I'm going to go on to something bigger. And, and um, the time in football tells you that, that he did. To live, and not many people leave um, Coventry and go to into Milan. Um, I remember speaking to him after a few months, and he'd left, and and he said, um, "My neighbour above me is Ronaldo," and he kind of sunk in where he was. <laughs> the Brazilian Ronaldo, by the way. Oh, the real one. The real, <laughs> real. Yeah. So he was. That was his. That was his um, neighbour. Just another couple of incidents then from your Coventry days. How close were you to David Boost when he suffered that horror injury against Manchester United in April 1996? And had you ever seen anything like that before? Um, well, me, I was very, very close to Boost. He, he was one of the first people when I went to Coventry welcomed me. And obviously living in Solihull together, we didn't live too far away. And we had, we had I'll say now, we had the odd night out. Odd night out. Because um, in case Gordon Strachan's listening or Ron Atkinson, um, um, our families are really close. So Boost is God, God, well, to me, to me, um, oldest son, Aaron. So we were very close, and we were playing together at centre back at Old Trafford. Um, the fatal day that happened, and I don't recommend anyone um, googling this and or getting the pictures. It was horrendous, horrendous, and um, obviously. Um, go and talk to I don't remember much about the day I've kind of blocked it out in terms of of being there I, I, I can't remember this. Oh, this is the truth I can't remember the score I mean I don't even got, I think we got beat but I can't even remember the score I, mem I just remember um, Booster going up for a corner and seeing his leg and he's got his hand up in the air and it, I wouldn't say I didn't care about the rest of my teammates but knowing but having um, been in close contact with him knowing his, his um, children and his wife and his, his dad and his mum hit, hit home a bit bit harder. In fact, what, what, he, what he was going through, seeing the pain that he was going through at the time was, was horrendous. And obviously, seeing the photos further down the line, I didn't, didn't, didn't look at him for maybe six or seven months. I can't imagine the pain he was going through. But um, our relationship was really, really strong. I, I drove up many days, um, took Boosie up to Manchester within Shaw Hospital and made sure he was okay. I remember staying over and going to see him the next day. And I don't mind telling you now, the day they told him he wasn't going to play again, I, I cried because he, he was so close to him. And, it, and for me, he's an inspiration, Boosie is, because he still tries to play a bit of football now. And he's so positive about his life. 
even from um, maybe two months afterwards, not knowing he was never going to play again, he was positive about what he was going to do next and, and do his coaching badges and all that stuff. So in terms of of, of daily, he's, a, he's an inspiration boost. He's, he's, a, he's a great lad. He's got some, he's quite witty. So yeah, I enjoy Brewster's company. How quickly can you put out, how quickly can you put that incident out of your mind and fly into a challenge again? Have you just got to block everything out mentally and like you say, almost forget that it's ever happened? Um, it's, it's tough, Richard. Is it, um, in terms of um, blocking out, I don't think you ever, ever block it out out your mind. I think it's something that you, you try and, when you go into a challenge, I think you, you go off the headers now, there's always a chance, chance of something happening. I think um, you're very, very lucky to go through your career and, and not, not have a, a, a major injury. And um, the time building up, maybe after, after David's um, injury, it was always in the back of your mind. But after a certain amount of time, maybe a year later, you're that naive that you're still flying into challenges. But I don't think it ever, ever goes, goes away at all. It's always um, somewhere in the back of your mind. What do you think looking back on your final sort of season at Coventry because I think the club finally went down and have never been able to bounce back since it must have been a really crushing blow but were you kind of on your way out at that time? No not really um it was tough because Gordon Stratton was was having to bring um rabbits out of hats every single time you know we were we were a selling club we brought in the Moroccan lads and we had Dion who was a stalwart of, of keeping us in the division really had left to Villa. We had the likes of George Boateng, Guy McAllister. All those players were on the verge of leaving. So our team wasn't, wasn't you can say, Premier League worthy. Because like my role within the team wasn't to go and shine and beat. I was, I was like the glue that helped all the rest perform in terms of um, being combative at the back and, and, and defending, defending wise. The rest was to go and, go and get goal to win the game. So then, like... In that last season, it's like I felt like they were looking for me for looking for for the older players to actually um, do something where we where it wasn't our job. We're looking at the likes of Dion and and hookers and and all those to, to go and carry the game to the opposition. And then ultimately, um, a, a few of the few of the signs didn't kind of come off for Gordon, which I felt really sad for him because he he, he deserves to be on the cusp of something really good. And um, we just weren't good enough in that in that final season in the Premier League. We weren't good enough. Now, one rumour I've heard from your time at Coventry is one involving a certain Craig Bellamy. Can you tell us what led to your rather one-sided dressing room altercation? Um, um, Craig was... was so, so if, I, if I try and frame it up, at Coventry, we, had, we, we survived on team spirit, which we, we, we were, were really close-knit. Um, dressing room, you know, like to Dion, Oggy, Hookers, Shawsy, Tolf, Noel Whelan, all the rest of them, Gary Breen, we all, Liam Dacey, we all these players were, we were really, really together and, and we, we survived on our team spirit. And then towards the end of um, Robbie Keane also came superstar, fitted in. And like you say, there's not many people go from Coventry to um, Inter Milan in a transfer, but, but he managed to do it. Speaks volumes for his talent. And um, we had a, towards the end, we, were, we weren't signing people that, that were, didn't kind of fit into to where we were and what we were about, it, the team spirit. 
And Craig, like a very, very talented player, very talented player, and his career speaks volumes for the clubs he went to. Um, just like you said, there's no, there's no wrong. He was focused in where he wanted to go, and and obviously Coventry was a stepping stone for him, really. But I just think at a time where we we needed people that that we need that togetherness to try and keep us up. Ultimately, we went down on on our team spirit, which was which was really poor towards the end. I think sometimes I think just a culmination of, of two things. I think the fact that the club weren't weren't in a very good position, and obviously we just needed people to work hard in training. And maybe maybe Craig thought it was working hard, and maybe I, I I got it wrong and he was working hard. He wasn't. I just think it came to head at, at one stage in the dressing room. That that was about it. Is it one of those things where you can put it behind you with him fairly quickly? Do you do you shake hands and make up, or was there always going to be a little divide there? No, I think at the same time, I think addressing was split um, at the time, which I think I don't think you you uh, yeah you, you do like so. I I can say and I'm not I'm not into naming names of altercations. There was one every week, which and and like you know by the time we got to the changing room after training, it had all forgotten because everyone knew it was coming from a good place. So um, in terms of of um, at the time, or even me and Craig, it's something that you just just forget about and get on with it. Because obviously, on a Saturday, you've got to try and try and be together. But um, I can honestly say, at that, that stage of Coventry's time, the dressing room was split. We wasn't, we weren't a kind of team, and all, and it culminated just being relegated at the end of the day. Do you still keep tabs on Coventry now? And what do you think about how the last sort of nineteen years have gone with the stadium issues and all the rest of it? Yeah, it, it's it's um it is sad. It's sad. Obviously, um, Coventry plummeted to the depths they did, and hopefully on on an upward curve now. It's still it's still sad to see them not having their own stadium, and they've got a stadium in in the city that that is is could actually be the Premier League stadium, but they don't even own it. To get to that stage from where we were when when um, we all left, it's a sad indictment of, of football. It's really sad. But I still, I still look and see how they get on. Hopefully, they'll, they'll, they'll win a few more games in the championship and be okay. Yeah. How did the move to Southampton come about? So, um, Richard Money took over from Gordon's track and at Coventry, and um, we had different ideas on on football. Not that I, I, I wanted. I, I just weren't getting picked. So, um, I used to come in and just, just. Running around the training ground, he did, I didn't. I didn't train. I just ran, ran around. No, the police college was up the road, so I used to run up there, run around there, and come back. That was my training session for a month. And within that time, Gordon Strachan had gone to Southampton. And um, lucky enough, I had a phone call within um, days of him getting the job, asking me to come down and watch a game. So I came down and watched the game. And obviously, things were being sorted out with Coventry about getting. A move to Southampton. And what kind of dressing room was that like? Was it another club where you had to condition yourself to be fighting against relegation again? No, not really, because they had just moved into the new stadium. There was, just, there was a new, new um, feeling around the club. There was a new stadium. Obviously, like when Gordon Strachan went there, that we hadn't won the game. Home game in the new stadium, the Premier League game. So um, to be part of that, the first league win in the stadium, Premier League win in the stadium was was a good feeling. But no, the, the squad was like you look around. We had um, Matt Letizia there, obviously an icon of football. Um, Danny Benali, again a legend of the club, 
but Jason Dodd, who I knew from um, the 21s, he, he was like the stalwart of the team. We had a really good, Marion Pahars, we had a really good team. James Beattie, obviously. Kevin Davis was there at the time. So with a bit of team spirit and a bit of um, coaching from obviously Gordon Strachan, we became um, a formidable side in, in, the, in the Premier League. I thought um, we had Chris Morrison on the left wing. We were, we were a good team. And Klaus Lundik-Warmer, a very, very underrated player for me. A really, really talented player. So we, we had the nucleus of a really good team. So it was another decent managerial job that Gordon did there. Yeah, again, his time at Southampton, I think he's been second to actually um, qualifying from Europe through um, losing in the FA Cup final. It was um, a really good feat. And again, again, could have, could have pushed on again, but like, and personally, this is a person I don't know the ins and outs of it. I feel that he just wasn't backed in the transfer market where he wanted to take the club to the next level. And then again, um, sort of in Gordon's track and leaves Southampton. But I think if he'd have backed him, we'd have, we'd have been a formidable um, team. And what do you remember of Cup Final Day 2003? I know you were, you were an unused sub, but you're still very much part of it, weren't you? It must have been a great occasion. It's like, like your boyhood dreams. You know, you, I, I remember sitting watching it with my dad um, Cup Final Day, and it wasn't like I turned on at half past two. It was 11 o'clock I started watching watching um, the build-up to, to the Cup Final, and actually living it and going through it was, was something that, like I say, I'll take me forever and, and tell my children that, that it is an amazing day. And, and even though at times um, in, the, in the modern day it gets um, devalued in terms of teams putting out or teams not or compromising it to win the Premier League or the Champions League, which is the club's prerogative, I, I just feel that it, it, it's, it's, it's an amazing cup. And I, I was fortunate to, to actually experience the whole day. When did he pick the team and when did he tell everyone? The morning of the game. Because it, it was, we, not many of us had been in that position. And, and I remember we went to um, Wales um, three days before and it was, it was giddy. You know, everyone was vying for places and, and wanting to know if we were playing. So I think instead of the nervousness creeping in and saying you're playing the night before, the manager picked the team the morning of the game. Right. And obviously being on the bench, it, it, was, it was an amazing day. Were you kind of struggling with, the, with a few injuries at the time? No, I had a few injuries, but I think, I think at the time I, I, was, I was, as the club was progressing to go to a higher level, they brought in Michael Spencer and, and, and Klaus was playing a lot of the time. It was just a matter of, I think, I, I was becoming the third centre-back within the team. Hmm. Again, I had a role to play within, within the team. So instead of like sulking that I wasn't, yeah, I accepted that there was a better, better players really in front of me. And again, just work hard and make sure that the, the level, that if James Beaton was going to be get, get better or score lots of goals, I'd have to work hard against him to, to, to um, hmm. score those goals. Were you not tempted when you were on the bench? It's a shame you didn't have YouTube at the time to just show Gordon some clips of when you were playing as a marauding left-sided attacking player at Derby and knocking him out. No, I, was whisper, I was whispering his ears, Rich, telling him, you can get your goal here if you put me on, but no, 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 it, it, it fell on deaf ears. It fell on deaf ears. What was it like after? What Because presumably you still have to go to certain engagements, don't you, as the losing finalists? Yeah, we had a... Um, in our hotel, we had a, um, obviously a, a room booked whether he won or lost a lot of family it was it was um somber to start off with but then I think as the night went on it was it was a great a great occasion a great um feat for the club and the, and the city to get to a cup final and we just celebrated that in the end that, that we, we had got here 
not built to the games that we, we, we really thought that we could catch Arsenal on a, on a bad day. And um, obviously, like, um, nick a goal and probably hold on and, and get it. We, we thought we, could, we had a chance of winning it. But obviously, like, we just had to celebrate the fact that we had lost and we, and we, we achieved what we had in that season. Well, it wasn't a bad Arsenal team, to be fair, because the following season, they went unbeaten. <laughs> it was. It was stars of stars. I remember warming up on, on warming up at half-time and looking across, and they, they, had, they had internationals on the bench. And there was also... No, they were a formidable side, and, and we, they, were, they were really good on the day. They managed the game really well. Obviously, mm. I think it was Robert Pierce who scored the goal that, that won the cup. Yeah. And that was your kind of farewell to Southampton. You, went, you ended up at Stoke, didn't you? Yeah, uh, so Gordon so Strachan um, offered me a new contract, but like, and again, looking back, I could have sat there and been the third centre back, um, picking up a decent wage, but I, j- I just wanted to wanted to play in the end. So um, I had spoken to Tony Pulis and, and gone to Stoke. Um, yeah, which which personally didn't work me playing wide, but like um, I've got the utmost respect for Tony Pulis, and again. Another manager that I still speak to now, it was just the wrong club for me. It was. And I couldn't offer him what he wanted from a person in my position to play in his position. Well, what did, he, what, what did he want from you and what didn't you have then in your game? Back in those days, and we had um, quick centre forwards, we had Adi Akinbai, the beast, who, who could run and muscle. And, and the more balls you put in behind, the more chance he, he'd get. And it was just. That I, I just didn't, didn't like playing that way. I didn't want to play long balls all the time. And like you'd end up, that you'd never get arrested because you'd end up defending the next second if the opposition got the ball, the ball was coming back again. So it was just a, just a clash. And, and like I've apologised to him since that, um, that maybe I wasn't the professional that, that I should have been in terms of the way he wanted me to play. I just never had it in me. So was there any option after those couple of years to carry on your career as a pro in England? Yeah. I could have done, I could have stayed, but like I was, I was at the time where I'd always had in the back of mind that I'd want to go and sample another country and whether, whether later in life I'd be able to do it in terms of work, I, I didn't think it was going to come across. So when I had the chance to go to America, um, so a friend of mine was manager of Richmond Kickers, Lee Carlishaw, he was the same year as me and lived not far from me. He went to Everton as a young lad. So um, he was now manager, and we did, we've spoken a few times in retirement Stoke. So I just decided that that was the place I wanted to go. Hmm. And what was life in America like? Did you adapt easy enough? I enjoyed my time there because it was it was more it was it was a really good lifestyle. So we train at eight o'clock in the morning hmm. because it was that hot, and like uh, at a, um, an apartment complex with a swimming pool and that. So I'd spend time in there all I'd coach one-to-one sessions in the afternoon. It was really, really good. I missed um, the family. But again, I went to Virginia, and Virginia's got a lot of history. So I, I saw both sides of, of good and bad of America mm. in terms of living in Virginia. You're going back historical now in terms of America's history and the slave trade. Yeah, and with the Civil War that went on. And again, like... It's pretty similar, not similar, but like, you know, the same issues of, of now. I, I run into a lot of police officers in, in um, America. And I think, fortunately, at times that I had, I had a British accent that I, I was let off. Or not let off, I, I was, I was um, just asked to, to drive away. And a lot, a lot of times, like, I, I remember being in the supermarket and getting called the N-word by 
some person because randomly thought that, that that was a thing to to, to say because obviously maybe I was in the wrong area at the wrong time. But it, it was it was good and bad. America was, but again, I learned lots. I learned lots. Wow. So do you think do you think it was a more racist environment than, than what you were used to, or was that isolated, or was it the fact that there's this issue. I mean, do we get the same issues with the police here? I mean, you hear about it in London with the stop, you know, the stop and search stuff. Yeah, I think so. I, th I think, well, I can only go on, on what I'm told and what, what I see and what um, I look on, on YouTube. I don't think it's, there's much difference. I think, I think there's, there's a profiling going on that, um, that makes it easy for, for um, people of colour to get stopped and, and, and searched. I remember looking on YouTube as a bank manager because he's got a nice car gets um, asked to get out of the car and stuff like that. So it was very, very similar um, in America. I remember I used, to, I used to go to a bar or go out in an afternoon with some of the lads and like one lad just refused to, refused to um, serve me, just wouldn't, wouldn't serve me. But like, that, that, was, that was a norm at the time, just, just, you just get on with it and move on. I, I, I just can't get my head around it. I mean, I don't know how you deal with that. Don't let him win, do you? Just go and enjoy yourself and laugh a, little, laugh a bit louder when you're in his company. Yeah. When he can hear you. Good it's Lord. fine. So what was the football like at Richmond Kickers? Give us an indication. What sort of level are we talking here? And um, we were looking probably um, non-league. The lads were very, very fit. Very, very fit. Mm. And like, like, obviously it was a hot country and they liked to wear the, the tops off with the khaki pants. So they'd be in the gym too. So they're very, very fit. It, it was not a technical game. It was, it was a blood and guts kind of environment where um, they, they, and, to, and to, to be honest with them, the lads are really good in, in which the team had. We had um, Tim Brown actually went on to play in the World Cup for New Zealand. He was, he was a teammate. He was good. We had, we, it was, again, not a technical game. It was more, more running. But like, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed my time there. And what do you remember of your last game as a pro? Did you know it was the end? Yeah. No, in fact, I knew before the game. I knew that, that mentally my head wasn't in football anymore in terms of actually one, one, no, so wanting to play at the level you want to play at and do yourself justice and put your head on the pillow knowing that you've done a good job. I, I, I could no longer be doing that for my teammates. So then it didn't dawn on me. I played my last game and I just knew that, that this is it. You need to, you need to um, pack it in now because you're, you're not only letting yourself down, you're letting your teammates down. So um, I stopped packed up playing them. And did you have that managerial opportunity already in the pipeline? What is it? Fredericksburg Gunners, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, so that was, that was, that was, that was just in between um, Washington and Richmond. So um, a friend of mine um, who was around the club put me in touch with them. And I, I with no idea, Rich, honestly, of, Coaches. So I'd go back to what I said earlier, just doing sessions that, that I, I, I had done with um, Ronex and Gordon Strack and Arthur Cox, Tony mm -hmm. Pulis, and that was it. With, with, no, with no understanding of um, methodology, no understanding of how it would affect the players, um, what I said to them or, or what, what we're doing, it had no relation to what we were doing on, on, on a match day anyway. So I, was, I, I pretty, pretty quickly understood that, that there's more to coaching than just putting on sessions that that um, I had done. And through my time at, at coaching, I, I was pretty um, in touch myself because I always wanted a manager. And fortunately enough, the managers I worked with 
I wanted someone to find solutions. So you can imagine playing football, Rich, and you've done something wrong. And you don't, you don't need the manager from the touchline telling you you've done wrong. Because that just, just um, cultivates everything that you, you, you know already. I wanted a manager that, manager that would give me solutions. And that's why I went into coaching. And that's why it soon dawned on me that this Frederick Bird, I need, I need to go and educate myself. I need to go and um, know the ins and outs of coaching and know, know um, and, and find my why really also. So what, why, why, why am I getting up in the morning? And for me, it's coaching and helping people. So that's why I, I soon, soon found at Fredericksburg. So did you start doing qualification straight away to learn more about it? No, I came back to England, Rich, and it was, it was strange because um, I remember writing off for jobs because at the time people were just finishing and going straight into management and getting jobs and, and naively for myself I thought no well, that's it I, I remember writing to Grimsby and, and it was one one letter that out of many that I got back and it says um um Mr Williams thank you for your application we don't feel that you're qualified enough to become I think they're in the in League Two where it is now at the minute, that you're not qualified to, to become a manager of Grimsby Football Club. And from then I went on a on a quest to be to get myself qualified, thinking that that was the reason why I wasn't getting jobs. So give us an idea of the process then, because you you've done basically every qualification there is yeah. in terms of yeah. getting to that top level. So what's the first one that you start with and then how does that progress? So um Again, and, and throughout this, Rich, I've been fortunate, really, really fortunate. Like, I've, I've met, met the right people at the right time and, and obviously stayed, stayed in touch with a lot, lot of them. So I come back and I go and do my, um, I know, refresher B license at Wolves. And I, I bumped into Jamie Robinson. He was a tutor at the time and a great bloke at the FA now, FA Learning. He's, he's head of that. And I just talked to him. And he, he had the same philosophy in terms of coaching that, like, you know, we need to find solutions for players, not, not um, condemn them for doing things wrong. Because ultimately, what they do, they've learned from you. Mm. So um, I then went on to Wolves coaching and I did the under-11s there. I think Jane put a word in for me. So I was doing the under-11s at um, Wolves. And again, that was a good learning curve. And then, then I, they gave me the under-14s team again. And I started to enjoy that. But in the background, I was doing, doing my badges and doing, not in terms of like maybe the A license and the Pro license, I was doing the youth modules. And again, they were, they were really, really good um, learning, especially for me where I think I have a bit of empathy and a bit of emotional intelligence to, to think about the player more than the technical and tactical, even though it's very, very important. But the person, and for me, one of the things that I get into football and get into coaching is, is to help people with life skills and through football and make, make sure that they can become a better person, that after football they, they can also adapt to life. Um, because I remember um, my first day of, of retirement, Rich, and like I was lost. I, I could honestly say to you right now that, that I, 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 I was depressed for two weeks. I remember like I used to meet Steve Frog at most days just, just to have a chat. Just because, like, from from my football career, which I'd know, you train the manager would tell you, oh, "I'll see you in the morning at August 10. I'd had that for for twenty years, and on on a Saturday after the game, oh, I'll run on Monday, 
normal time. And that, that was it. And then from my last game and coming back, I wake up Monday morning and there's no longer saying where you should be. You don't actually belong to, to anybody. You don't actually belong to a football club. You don't belong to anything. So um, it was, it was, it was I, I, could, I could quite easily have gone down the pub every single day of those first two weeks of, of, of um, packing football up. But then, like, I'm, I'm grateful to Froggy and, and my wife that, that you know, you, you can talk and find why you want to, want to get out of bed again. And it was coaching. And again, it, it gave me um, the appetite to get up and want, want to do something again. You got certain opportunities while you were still doing your badges. But what's the, what's the pro licence like? You know, the top end of the coaching pyramid. Yeah, well, it's, it's the ultimate. But, but, but ultimately, I, I, I had to go and do my pro licence because of that letter I got from Grimsby. Because hmm. I, I, I had to go on a quest now to make sure that, that the next time I, I write to Grimsby, that not, that's not the reason they're not going to give me the job. Hmm. So um, it, it was good. We had some really good people on, on, on it. Lee Carsey, who, um, again, I've been lucky enough to work um, a few jobs with. You had Duncan Fergus on it, Ferguson again, again in that McArthur mould, but no, he's, he's a great lad. You get to know him and he, he's a fantastic person that, again, would give you anything. Yeah. Um, Brian Dean was on it. Um, again, he was good. Dougie, Dougie Freeman. We had, we had a really good um, cohort of, of people on, on, within our group. Yeah. And again, um, getting your pro license was, again, a really highlight of, of, of my coaching career. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the ultimate, isn't it? So at that stage, are you applying for jobs with a bit more confidence? And what kind of experience were you getting with these applications? Were you getting to the interview stages? No, Rich, so I think, I don't, um, sorry, I'm going to rewind a little bit. So again, doing the time, so leaving Wolves, I was, um, I, I was applying for jobs in Southampton. Obviously, my wife's from Southampton, so I am. Um, we were living in the Midlands, and I, was, I went down for an interview. Unfortunately, I got I got um, a job doing the under 11s but obviously we hadn't sold our house, so I was travelling from the Midlands, leaving at two o'clock to do seven o'clock session in Southampton in case of traffic, and leaving there at nine o'clock and going back to the Midlands. I did that for the first three months, and then obviously we sold our house and we moved down to Southampton, and that was that was pivotal to me coaching coaching career. I, I learned so much um, through the likes of Matt Crocker and Terry Moore at Southampton on how to coach and how to, how to become a better coach. Unfortunately, um, through, that, through that time, and Nicola Cortese, who, was, who became a chief exec and, and the um, chairman of the club, um, promoted me to the under-18s with Jason Dodd, hmm. who again, and, and I said I've been fortunate in, in my career, fortunate to work with, with such a, uh, a great bunch of players who ultimately have gone on to having good careers within the Premier League right now, was a, great, a good learning curve for me. And I've been left there going to Brentford and, and working with England and Swansea ultimately was, was um, really, really good and, and pivotal to, to where I am now as a coach. But going back to your question now, which is there's no end of jobs I've gone for that like, I don't, I don't, you don't get an email back to say you've not got it. And even recently going for jobs, that, that um, it just surprised me that the people who end up getting it and like you end up trying to, trying to um, find out where the connection is, that they've, they've got a job over you in terms of qualifications and, and, and CVs. I think mine's, mine's not bad at the pace I've, I've worked for it and it's even better 
the things I've learned personally that I, I know about coaching. And obviously, it's, it's been tough um, not getting a job at the minute. And that Southampton job, you did a great job there. You and Jason brought some good players through. I think Luke Shaw's been very uh, positive in what he said about you guys. I think, fair, I think it's fair to say you lost your job in pretty controversial circumstances. Were you ever given a proper explanation about that? And are you comfortable with the explanation? No, we've had no explanation. No, they say they wanted to go in a different way. Um, Les Reed, Martin Hunter and Matt Hale um, came up with the idea that... I don't know. I'll be, I'll be honest. Me and Dodsey, it was all about the players for us. It wasn't about us. And maybe at times we did things that they didn't really agree with. But it wasn't that we were being stubborn. It was, it was always what's benefited the players. And ultimately, um, at a time of getting sacked... I remember um, Dodgy saying to me that we must be the, we must have thought we were the safest um, under 18s coaches in the country at the time because obviously the, those players had, had played in the first team: Callum Chambers, James Ward-Price, Luke Shaw, Sam Gallagher, and then Nicola leaves, who we were close to, and then Les Rees decides that he wants to go a different way. And ultimately, since then, no players have played in the in the first team from the academy that they, they that have been homegrown. We've bought a few, but not not been through. I think they said that you don't spend enough time with the players or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, yeah, that was what they came out with. And again, like that's not really an explanation of because we used to we used to spend time with the, the um, under 16s as well as under 18s. So again, it, that's just I think that's just the politics of, of, of football clubs and the and the people at the helm at the time. Well, the man at the first team helm for some of that period, of course, was Mauricio Pochettino. What was he like to work with, Paul? Um, I've said this, a lot of people quite ask me this question, um, Rich. He's, firstly, he's an amazing man. He is first and foremost, he's got high values, high standards, and um, he's welcoming to everybody. You know, it's not just, um, you know, you come to some clubs and some managers are a bit aloof. He, he, was, he embraced everyone that, that was at, at Southampton at the time. And personally for me, he taught me what coaching was really about and having a way of playing. So I used to study him for three years at a time as there which he, he integrated the youth team, me and Dodgy were doing at a time, with the first team. We used to play the first team like, on a Wednesday. But, like You'd ask him about sessions he does and how he does stuff, and he was, he was open to giving you all this information. He was, he's, he's, like, for me, he's, been, he's one of the best and biggest influences on, on my coaching career. Are there any extra magical qualities that make him such a highly sought-after manager? Um, in terms of him i think he's very close to his team very loyal to his team and like they all know their roles and responsibilities and, and the, i think that he knows his weaknesses and he, he identifies them within his staff that give him that whole holistic approach and i've not seen many i've not heard of many players that, that don't like his methods or don't don't um buy into who he is and what he does like harry kane i heard when he left um tottenham spent three hours around his house and that's not not very often done you know as managers and players you know um, I've, I've had managers come and gone and you, you don't tend to see him again for another year or you speak to him on the phone but actually to go around there must explain an imp the influence that he had on Harry Kane in terms of his career and also as a, as a friendship. Hmm. Yeah that's really interesting because football is such a transient industry that you know you can make friends and lose friends very very quickly as soon as as soon as you move on, but yeah, I was taught. Sorry, Rich, I was taught um, no ships that pass in the night. That's it. Like you, you sit next to next to a player one day, 
and he's gone. And the next time you see him, he's, he's on a problem in a football pitch on the, on the opposite team. So, yeah, I can personally see, see the influence he had at Southampton, not only just on, on the first team and the players. And that's no disrespect to Nigel Adkins either. He came in and, and took it to a different level in terms of everything that he did. Um, like for the first game he had at Southampton, the work rate of the players went up maybe, I don't know, 30, 40%. So I just think that um, he, he has the skills to influence um, any team. And if, if it was um, a top four team in this country or even in Spain or Germany, I think he'd have the um, capacity to influence that and make him successful. You see what he did at Tottenham in terms of not even having um, any budget. The fact that um, he turned that round and made him into a Champions League um, team getting to the final just speaks volumes for his work that he does. You did do really well for England, obviously. Is that a massive highlight of your coaching career, the Four Nations in 2016? Again, I'm fortunate again. So, Phil Foden, Jaden Sancho. What were those two lads like as characters and players? Phil's, um, he had the talent um, first and foremost. It's not nothing that, that uh, as a pleasure um, coaching and really, really nice lad down to earth. Um, can have a good laugh with him. But um, his football spoke volumes for, for who he was. He, he was very, very, ta- he is very, very talented. And even at the age of 16, showed that um, in bundles, his training sessions, the quality he's got was, was fantastic. And also just around the place, he was, he was one of the, one of the, um, integral parts of, of the squad that we took to um, America. You very, very rarely see a young Manchester City lad break into the first team setup and stay there. But did you think that Foden could do that or that he would have to move on? No, it's hard, hard to, um, to envisage that um, he, he was going to get through, you know, because obviously, like, you look at uh, Man- the likes of Manchester, Manchester City at the time and they had players lots of players and, and you'd, you'd try to think his pathway would be, be limited but um, credit to Phil and his ability and his attitude to, to learning and, and obviously wanting to get better that he is at a place he's on the cusp of um, nailing down a, um, a starting position week in week out so all credit to him in terms of what he's done and then you look at the other um, scenario and another pathway that Jane and Sancho had to take obviously they're in the same team together and at the same club but Jaden felt that um, Maybe his pathway was was away from Man City and probably very parallel to, to where um, Phil is within the England setup also. So there's, there's different roads you can take to get to get to the right right solution that you want or the right obje- objective you've set yourself. So Phil Phil stayed and, and battled it out, and Jaden went to um, Dortmund and, and still still found themselves at the same place. Very big decision for a young player to make, isn't it, to go over to Germany. Did he have the right people around him? Was he a really level-headed, mature lad who could make that decision? Yeah, I think Jaden and, and the time that, that um, we spent with him, I, I thought that he was very focused and he knew where he wanted to be. So Jaden was very focused and, what, and obviously um, had aspirations to get into Manchester City's first team as soon as possible. And maybe that's why he did, he did choose a different journey where Phil's been patient and um, got his got his way, and I think Jaden Jaden probably wanted it wanted just I wanted to play first team football now, and obviously when the opportunity came up with Dortmund, and again you can't say it's the wrong decision. He's made those appearances, and he's got himself at a stage where he is at um, the England level that he's playing at now. So I think um, 
for Jaden, Jaden was 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 a different character to Phil. That he just wanted to be in that first team as soon as possible and took a different route. That squad was was destined, setting on with destined to, to win World Cups. So me and Dam, well, Damachichi and I, I was his, his assistant. Again, another good learning curve for me, having to. I was working part time, but I was working for Brentford in the Championship and doing part time with England on the international breaks. So again, I was fortunate to work with those players and learn a lot about youth development with those at that level because mm. they, they were destined to be superstars like they've gone on to be. And then I went to Nottingham Forest and, and with Dougie as a assistant, obviously I knew Dougie from the pro last, so he gave me the assistant manager's job, which was enjoyable, but obviously wasn't getting the results. And I remember um, we got beat 3-0 by Sheffield, Sheffield Wednesday and I was driving home so obviously I still live in Southampton. And I got a phone call from the press officer saying, um, could I come back? The chairman wants to speak to you. And I'm thinking, oh, well, just call me and, and like, we, can, we can put something in the press on Monday about getting a sack. And he says, no, he wants to speak to you face to face. And I said, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm at, to- I'm at um, where am I now? Bra- Brackley on the A43. So I'm nearly on. He says, no, no, you need to come back. So obviously I turned back and do an hour and a half back to, um, back to Nottingham. And in that meantime, I rang Dougie. I said, Dougie, have you had the phone call? And Dougie says, no. I said, well, they've asked me to go back. So um, he says, it's actually now how, how you get on. So um, I went back and spoke to the chairman. I told the press guy, just send me, send, I'll put a statement out on Monday. He says, I want you to take over. And I said, I won't do that without Dougie's blessing. There's no chance. So, I, so after that, I went into the car park and said, Dougie, he told me he's going to sack you and he's going to, um, he wants me to take over. And, and Dougie says, he won't sack me, he won't sack me. But if he do, but like, you can, you take the job. So obviously, um, being manager at Nottingham Forest was, was again, highlight of me coaching. Such a fantastic club and you walk to the ball and he's got two um, European Cups. And the history of the club with, with, in my eyes, one of the greatest managers that England's ever seen, Brian Clough. Again, someone that, like I was at Derby, so I knew an iron how good he was. And speaking to some of the lads at college, of what kind of manager he was, it, it was it was it was a it was an honour to actually be sitting in the dugout and manager of that club. So getting back to um, coaching England, so then I agreed um, to join England, having left Boris, and I was. Um, Steve Cooper's assistant under 17s. So then I, um, then obviously what happened with Sam Allardyce as England manager, where um, Gareth took over from Sam and A.D. Boothroyd had gone up to the 21s. So the rest asked me to become head coach of um, the 20s. And again, I keep telling you, I'm, I'm fortunate like that. So I've got a team of um, Tammy Abrams. Um, Dom Solanke. Um, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Yeah, again, yeah. Trying uh, Adam Ola-Luckman. Um, Lewis Cook had a team of, of fortunately, a really good lads to, to work with. So, again, we had a tournament in... Um, really easy to coach. Like that, that was pretty easy with the talented, talented players that we had in the squad. And, again, being head coach of that was, again, another highlight of actually winning a tournament against um, Holland. USA. But <laughs> I have a sliding doors moment that I, I, I can laugh about 
Now, so that team was going to go to the World Cup in, in, in the summer. So this was like October, we had this tournament. So um, it was in, in South Korea. So we go to South Korea for a pre-tournament of games. So we play, I think it's four games, and we, we come runners up to South Korea who actually won the, the, um, the mini tournament. And I come back and I get back to, to the airport and I turn my phone on and there's a phone call from um, Swansea saying, do you want to become um, Bob Brad's assistant in the Premier League? And again, like, I don't know when that chat opportunity is going to ever come back, come up for me again. But on the other hand, it, it's do I stay at, the, stay at the FA? And they, were, they, were, they didn't give me um, assurances that I would be taking that team anyway to the World Cup. So I had to try and make a calculated guess where, which way it went and I decided to go to Swansea and, and having the chance to coach in the Premier League again talk about highlights and unfortunately being in the right place um, even the, the, the months that I spent there was, was, was really good and a really good learning curve for me again working with the likes of um, Sigurdsson was, was, and Lorente were, were um, eye-opening hmm. So what do you remember of your first meeting with Bob Bradley then? Uh, did you think that he was equipped to do that job, to be parachuted in from America to do that job. Very different. It was tough. It was tough because um, I, talk, I talk a lot about the environment. It, it was tough for Bob because a language barrier is a big thing, even though you'd think there's no language barrier in speaking English, but the terminology that was used was, was tough. And, and getting to know the environment of, of British players or British-based players, you know, I know we had Gilfie and Laurentian and um, Angel. We had lots of players that had, had been, kind of know what it's like in England and, and kind of um, accommodate themselves to it. So it was tough for Bob in terms of, of winning them over. And it was a tough time for me. And I even remember, like, you know, <laughs> Soccer AM would, would run, a, run a bit about him on a Saturday morning. So it must have been difficult for him in terms of... Um, and again, like even even things like that on a Saturday morning doesn't doesn't give the players that that um, relationship where, where they, they take him serious. And, and that's not the reason why Bob didn't succeed. It's just that, that it, it, I thought I thought it was a lot of things against him in terms of having an even kill to to actually um, achieve something at Swansea. Hmm. And how did your relationship work with him? Were you taking all the sessions, and he would? Kind of look on from the side. No, at the start, it, it, I did. I took I took the majority of the sessions, and then um, Bob decided that, that that he wanted to to take the reins, and it, it and which which I was I was fine with. He was the manager, so I I just did. I was I was told really. It was it was it was a good relationship in terms of um, want, wanting wanting the best for the players, but again, like how you how you get that was was probably where. At times we didn't see eye to eye because, again, I've spoken about that I see, see it through the players' eyes and what's best for them and some, having those conversations with them where sometimes they don't, don't need to know what they've done wrong and just need, need um, energising and, and saying that, no, we can do this. Sometimes the conversations were lost in translation in terms of the terminology. And it, like I said, it was, it was tough for Bob to, to, to win that over. So sometimes when you're an assistant, is it is a lot of it fighting fires then with players and developing that one-on-one -on -one chemistry with them? Um, for me, it, it's ultimately it's, it's it's the manager's call. But like like again, I won't go as far as fighting fires. It's just um, smoothing things over because again, 
like a lot of the time was of my time was dealing with players that, that hadn't been picked, mm. you know, and trying to justify it within within the manager's eyes the reasoning why they hadn't, and trying to get them to, to think that a bit like like me that like you've been you're not playing now, so go and prove him wrong, go and show what you've got, and that was my mentality in terms of of that when players didn't get in the team, and also trying to help in that that certain things certain things and ways that things are done in this country that that um, maybe Bob didn't understand that that um, has a a direct or indirect um, effect on the players. Again, there's just like little things that, that maybe worked for him abroad but wouldn't work over here. Yeah, I think it was Boya Baston. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but I think Boya Baston yeah. said that he basically drove the team mad, that the players just didn't have a clue what he was trying to do. <laughs> you want me to comment on that? <laughs> No, that, 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 and again, it, it wasn't so, um, again, Boyle, he wasn't playing many games. And again, he didn't speak much English. And again, like I was saying, just things get lost in trans, translation. And in terms of Swansea having a real, a real clear philosophy on the way they wanted to play through Brendan Rodgers and, and over the years, you know, and, and Liam Britton all, all knew how they were playing. And maybe, again... Things the way that Bob Bob wanted to do things were were different to the way that the players had had, um, had things done over the years, and, and again things maybe got lost in translation where it, it fell down in the end. Yeah, but to only last eleven games, I mean it's a precarious role, isn't it, being a manager? But also as an assistant, very few coaches who come in take on existing backroom staff. So did you know that when Bob was on the way out, you'd be on the way out, or? We took over for a couple of games. Um, we got beat by Bournemouth, and then the Palace game, I thought was was our, one of our best performances of the season. We played um, Sam Allardyce was manager at the time. We played him at Sellers Park. We beat him two one. I thought we our first half particularly were really 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 good, and then obviously late after the game, um, the, ma- the new manager was announced. So uh, so again, I've been having so many years in football. The kind of writing's on the wall. Having um, a new manager and bringing in th- and three new staff, you kind of know that you probably serve us to requirements. In situation- that, again, Rich, sorry to interrupt, that I, I, I find hard in football that, um, and I understand that you, you want people that, in that you can trust around you in terms of staff, but what if you've got someone that you can trust already there? And this is, this is for me going into jobs or even uh, um, coming out of jobs that, um, some people get lost in, in, in all that um, transition. And like, like I've got to look back at Swansea, some good staff have left that, left that, that club since, since I've, I've left. And you know, not on the backroom staff, physios and stuff like that. Some people are, are really good and, and trustworthy. But, but once a new manager comes in and decides that, that he wants a clean sweep, that, that, that happens without even giving them a chance to, to show that they, they are trustworthy and that someone that you can really count on or they're really good at their job. And it's also incredibly expensive for football clubs. I remember when Rafa Benitez left Liverpool, the amount of staff that then left. I mean, it wasn't just a few backroom staff. It was analysts. It, it, it told about 30, I think. So did you not even get an yeah. opportunity to have a conversation with Paul Clement? No, not at all. Um, I remember um, after, after the game, so we were told, obviously, like, no, we're in the next day for warm down. And I got a phone call at 7.30 from a chairman saying, um, you, I'm not need to, I don't need to come in this morning. So I, I, I was obviously living in Swansea at the time. I just drove back to, um, 
Southampton, though. You know, obviously things got sorted out after that. Well, you're not in the game at the moment, but I'm presuming you want to get back in. Yeah, I'd love the opportunity. I, I like so, which I'm fortunate at the minute that um, obviously working with um, PSN. Like I, I just think that hopefully we can build this um, company over over the next year or so, because I think there's some really good things to come out of it. So in terms of um, helping former and current players, we offer so much to to players and things. That, again, it's a bit like the coaching thing. One, I don't I don't want to know that we've done it wrong. We don't try and find solutions. So that's kind of been the ethos of, of the company where um, even people who have financial trouble or even got in with the wrong um, advisors, we offer service to those people and um, counselling, performance, education, which is a massive thing. And again, I wish I had done when I was younger that I had a second career that I, I went and did, did a few courses. So while we're in, been in lockdown, which I've educated myself so much, like obviously done a couple of um, counselling courses, um, leadership and management, I'm just um, on the verge of finishing my um, equality and diversity training and also um, teaching and qualification. I'm, I'm, I've educated myself and I know and I feel that I'm a better, better coach and a better person having done, done these and I've, I've upskilled myself enough to um, be a better coach next time I go in. So, yeah, it's something that, that I really want to do, but like at this moment in time, I'm quite excited by the future of, of building PSM and helping helping them become a formidable um, company. And uh, like, it's not an agency. We don't deal with players in terms of, we just want to try and help them in, in, in all areas that, that, that probably they don't cover this minute in time. And like I say, it's something that was needed many, many years ago. Um, but with all the qualifications that you've got now, is the dream scenario to combine that, to continue doing that, as well as doing some coaching? Or is there a specific role in a football club where you can utilise your coaching strengths and all the new educational assets that you've brought on board? Yeah, I think I, think I wouldn't kind of pigeonhole who I am or what I am now. I think, I think I've broadened my rise in terms of, of my skills now. So whether I'm on grass or, or not, grass or, or mentoring coaches it's something that, that I'd really love to be able to get the opportunity to do yeah brilliant well it's a great way to end it Paul thank you ever so much for your time thanks Richard enjoyed that thanks for the chat much appreciated Paul is indeed doing some great work at PSM and as you've heard he's worked incredibly hard in developing his skill set so that he's able to really help current and former players in various aspects of their lives. Now if you've got any comments please get in touch via Twitter at Richard Lenton. That's at Richard Lenton. See you soon. The Phoenix Sport and Media Group provide honest and trustworthy professional advice and business solutions to the sports and media industry. For more information, visit www.psm-group.co.uk.